We are going through the book of 1 Peter. Um, and today, once I've got my notes sorted, we're going to go through the end of chapter 2. So we, um, yeah, we've got to verse 18 in, chapter, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2. And this is where Peter, who's writing this letter, is addressing the Christian servants to submit to their own masters. And how we can see that in this letter, it was not only relevant to the servants in the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago, but how it demonstrates to us today how to work well in our work environments and our work relationships. So we're going to be breaking it down. I've got a few points to be focusing on as we go through. They all begin with S, so hopefully you'll spot them and you'll be able to remember them as we go along. So we're going to read together um, from the ESV. I'm reading from the ESV version, um, but the text will come up on the screen if you want to read it along with me. So this is from verse 18 to 25. It says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering, suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, you, if when you sin, you're beaten for it, you endure? But when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Before we dive into that text, I just want to ask you a quick question. What was your first job? Maybe this was a long time ago, or maybe it was quite recent. What was your first job? My first job was a paper round. Oh, so I heard someone say paper round. It was a paper round. Um, this was, in fact, my brother's paper round. It wasn't mine. I was just the helpful little sister that spent hours putting leaflets into each paper, folding them up, putting them in a trolley, and tagging along for the exciting, uh, exciting trip around the block to deliver these papers through people's doors. It was like I was their little servant. They were the boss, and it felt like I was doing all the hard work. I'm sure that they'd say differently, so don't ask them, but I felt like I did all the hard work. I was happy doing my little important job, though, and I don't think I ever really complained, other than the fact that I got covered in ink from the paper, I had the odd paper cut from the, uh, from the papers, and I had to navigate the scary dog doors um, that you put your fingers through, and you didn't, want to, you didn't want to go through those doors. But it was worth the suffering, of these things, as we had an agreement that I would get paid a little bit from them in the end. So this was my first experience of having a job with a boss, albeit my brother. So a lot of us here in this room, whether currently or in the past, may have had a job of some sort. That might be a medic, an accountant, a cleaner, or a teacher, or whatever that might be. And at biblical times, this means that you might have been considered a servant. In some translations, you may have read it in your Bible today, it uses the word slaves. And this term often has huge negative connotations with it, understandably. But in this passage, Peter is not presenting a moral argument against slavery. Paul, one of the apostles in another letter, in 1 Timothy, does present this, and it, where he condemns slave traders. And it's clear that God will bring justice and judgment against those who kidnap people 
in order to force them into slavery. But this passage isn't specifically looking at this kind of slavery as such. It's looking at how Christians who work should respond and submit to those in authority above them. There'd actually been about 60 million servants in the Roman Empire, and a lot of these were Christians in the early church. So this letter would have been relevant to so many of Peter's readers at the time. One of my kids said to me the other day, he said, if I were to draw a picture of a family in a reading book, it would be a man, a woman, a brother, a sister, a baby, a cat, and a dog. This is what he said. This is what an average family picture looks like in today's reading books. Well, if this was a children's book 2,000 years ago, it would have looked slightly different. There would have been a dad. He would have been the master of the house. There would have been a mum. There would have been some children, maybe some grandchildren. And then added in the picture, there would be some servants. This was, these were very much part of the Roman family, part of the Roman household. And this is how society worked in those days. Some of these would have been born into servant families and continued in the role. Some of them would have been captured in the war and forced to be servants. And some of them actually chose to be servants because it led to a better lifestyle for themselves. It wasn't just for the unskilled jobs either. Some of them were well-educated. Some of them were accountants. Some of them were teachers. Some of them were musicians, medics, and so on. So a massive range of people that were covered, that were serving those that owned them. So what does it look like for us today in our work? Well, when you show up to work, you clock in. You belong to your employer. You are serving them. You are being their servant as you work. You enter an agreement to work the hours that the boss requires. You complete the job that is described to you and you get paid for the work that you do. So all you are required to do is hold up your end of the contract that the boss has made. But when you get to leave and clock out, you're your own free person again. So when I go to work, I'm Rachel, the music teacher. And when I leave work, I'm no longer Rachel, the music teacher. I'm just me again. The difference being with these servants that Peter is addressing was that there was no clocking in and clocking out. They were servants when they woke up in the morning and they were servants when they went to bed. And that most of them, they were servants for life with no easy way out. So imagine this was you. Well, just like today, you would have probably ended up chatting with your family or your friends or your, your, in your life groups, maybe. And you were talking about how life was treating you, how the authorities were treating you, how your masters were treating you, and that some of your, your work was really hard and that your masters potentially were treating you quite harshly and unfairly. And that the way that you had been taught by Jesus and the disciples of how you were to live may have contradicted with the way that you were feeling, and it might have all seemed a little bit overwhelming to know what to do. Well, Peter, the writer of this letter, was one of, of Jesus' closest friends and followers, and he knew the situation. He had found himself in some hairy situations with the Roman authorities, and he knew too well what it meant to be ridiculed and treated harshly. He'd seen how Jesus had been treated by the authorities, and he knew many around him were going to start facing persecution and would be treated unfairly. So he wanted to address the situation to the church, to these servants, as, and this is what we're going to look at today. So my first point, oh, what are these servants told to do? They are told to submit. This is my first S, submit. So we can read in the first, um, the first verse 18, 
Peter's first instruction is to be subject to your masters. This is to, be, to submit to your masters with respect. So this sounds okay if you've got a good master, but then Peter goes on. He says, well, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. This seems not so easy. I'm sure it would have been nice and simple for those servants and also for us reading this today if Peter had written, well, submit to those who are good and gentle, but react differently and understandably if you're treated harshly. But this isn't what Peter is saying. He's quite clearly saying to submit to your masters whether they're good or bad. And Peter's not stating that all masters will be harsh and unjust because that wasn't the case. But he does know that some in authority will be treating their servants and employers with disrespect and unfairly. So this is why he wants to address it at this time. And unlike today, where thankfully we do have things in our in our, uh, things in place in our work environments for such things not to happen, or at least hopefully be resolved in more ethical and moral ways. But those, in those days, these legal systems didn't work. They, they weren't existing in the same way as we've got today. And the treatment of these servants, even under the authorities, were, un, were often unjust. And if they'd have tried to fight the authorities or leave their role, they would have ended up in a, in a worse position than they started with. And for some of them, being a servant meant that, meant that they actually had some security in life. It meant that they were given a home. It meant that they were given a wage. So they weren't likely to just stand up and quit if it got hard. It wasn't practical to do that. And he's also not saying, for the ones that were being mistreated, he's not saying that they should just sit back and allow the abuse to happen and being taken advantage of. But it is saying that they are still to submit to their masters and respect them. So why is he saying this? Why is Peter addressing these servants to submit with respect, even when they are treated unfairly? We're looking back at the verses um, that come prior to this passage. In verse 12, it says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable, so that when, you speak against, uh, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. And in verse 15, it says, For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. If we're able to still live in ways that might be contrary to the way that the world often behaves, then others will see this positive reaction in us and know something is different about us. They will start thinking to themselves and even might start, and ask, might start asking questions of, why are we not getting uptight and angry when we're treated in such ways? And our answers can always point to Jesus and what he's done in our lives. This is an amazing way that we can demonstrate Jesus in our workplaces. It's about, be, it's about being people who, despite the opposition and despite the potential unfair behaviour of those around us, we are still able to act in ways that are fair and honest. It's not saying that we should accept and, or condone their behaviour, but it's about where our heart is at and whether our heart is able to still show kindness and not repay in a way that's not honourable ourselves. Maybe for some of us here, we need to be reminded of the purpose of our career. Our work is far more than an opportunity to express our interests and skills. It's far more than an opportunity just to earn some money, to pay the bills, to get promotion and prepare for retirement. It's an opportunity to live daily the way that Jesus wants us to, to show those around us the truth about Christ. As we go about our daily life, whether that's by teaching others, by answering phone calls, by making deals, we, can, we may all face dilemmas and opposition because of who we are as Christians. But in these times, we can demonstrate Christ. 
And this might even be the only time that our fellow colleagues and bosses see Jesus, and that's working through us. So our occupation is just another context in life where we get to show people Jesus. So for me, just being completely honest about my working relationships, for most of my work in life, I've even been self-employed or generally had good bosses. So I've never really felt that, that they've been persecuting me because I'm a Christian. And I've never really felt that I've been wronged by them, by those who employ me. But I'm sure there are a number of people in this room in different circumstances where they felt unfairly treated by those bosses at work. So how do we view those that we work for? Are we able to submit to them, as it says so in, here in, in Scripture? Can we still be respectful to them when they treat us well, when they're good and fair, or when we're treated unfairly? If we have a view that our true master is God, and he is the one that we are su to submit to first, then it becomes much easier to submit to our employers, even when it's difficult, because we could know that he is the one that gives us all things. So yes, we need to submit to our employees. It says it so here. But they are not our true master. They don't have complete authority over our lives. And if they require us to act or work in ways that would go against honouring the Lord, then we don't submit to that. But then we do have to embrace the consequences of not doing what they want or expect. And in my next point, we'll see what Peter says about suffering unjustly. So Peter goes on from verse 19, and it says... For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and you're beaten for it, you endure? But when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So my next point, my next S, is setting our mind on God. Why does it say it's a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly? Does God want us to suffer? Why does, it, why does it say that he sees it as a gracious thing? Surely we're told that God is a loving God and what's the best for us. So why does it say it's a good thing in the sight of God when we're suffering unjustly? Well, thankfully, we do know that God is a loving God and he does want the best for us. But we're in a world where we as Christians might be treated by people with a lack of respect and disregard. And when we are, it pleases God when our minds are set on him and not on revenge or justifying ourselves or fighting our own corner. It's not, it's not saying that it's pleasing to God to see us suffering and dealing with sorrow and grief, but Peter is informing us here that even in the midst of this suffering, it's good for us to be mindful of him. In Colossians 3, it says, Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. This is who we are as Christians now. We've been raised with Christ and he lives in us. Therefore, let our actions show this. If we can keep our hearts set on things above, that is on Jesus and he will do the rest for us. He will give us everything that we need in whatever situation that we face. Maybe you're the only Christian in your office or your workplace. And there might be some decisions that you have to make that might be rather tricky because you're not willing to change position on your beliefs. And this might make you stand out against the crowd or it might make you feel uncomfortable in situations. And it might mean that you're disagreed with or treated differently to your colleagues. 
It may even be that you're asked to change roles or you're not considered for that promotion that you're really wanting because you, are Christ, you as a Christian are not the right fit. You might not fit the mould that they are wanting and that they're looking for. And these situations seem so unfair and so unjust and they're really hard to deal with. You may have found yourself in these situations at work before. How do our hearts respond to these things? Are we still able to react with love and respect to those who are treating us in such ways? When we suffer for doing the right thing, when we stood up for what we believe in, when we stood up for Jesus, then we are doing the right thing in the sight of God. It says that this is a gracious thing. When we suffer unjustly, it's not that God is turning a blind eye and makes us go through things on our own. He knows us and he's involved in all that we do. So I want to encourage you to keep seeking his Holy Spirit and allow him to work in our hearts to help us respond in ways that glorify him. So when we're going to work, are we able to set our minds on God, for, God, on God first for the day and asking him to lead us and to protect us? When we're in meetings with our colleagues or replying to emails, are we asking Jesus to give us wisdom to know what to say and what not to say? And when we, when we are treated unfairly by our bosses and those above us and our colleagues, are we able to look to Jesus and ask him to help us by his Holy Spirit to live in ways that demonstrate his love towards others? We're going to continue reading from verse 21 and look at our next point to see how Jesus has given us an example as he suffered. So verse 21, it says, For to this you have been called. Because Christ has suffered for you. Christ has left us an example so that you might follow in his steps. So this is my next point, suffering. Did you know that by becoming a Christian, a follower of Jesus, there's not a promise that we will live lives with no trials or problems. But in fact, in scripture, it says quite the opposite. It says that we will face trials and persecution in this life. But the good thing is that we don't have to do these things on our own with no clue what to do. When I was a teenager, I had one of those wristbands that said WWJD on it, which stands for What Would Jesus Do? I'm not sure if many of you have had that or seen them in the past. I don't even know if they exist anymore, but this was a great reminder to have on my wrist to myself and to my friends to be thinking, well, what would Jesus do in this situation? And I think we need to be reminded and guided by this question in all areas of life. And this passage is great as it says, Christ has left us as an example so that you might follow in his steps. He has made a way for us to know what he would do as he has already shown us what he did when he faced unjust suffering and he's asked us to follow in his steps. For the last half of this passage, Peter is quoting part of Isaiah 53 from the Old Testament. And this is a prophecy that was looking towards a suffering servant that would come to rescue the world. Well, fast forward a few centuries and Peter here was able to say that this was Jesus. Jesus was the suffering servant that came to the world and suffered in an unjust way. If you know the story of Jesus going on the cross, then you know that before he was hung on the cross to die, he was ridiculed, he was be uh, beaten, he was spat at, he was tortured and he was made to carry his own heavy cross to the place where he was going to get executed. And you might think, well, if there was a time when Jesus could have thought, well, enough was enough. And a time where it would have been acceptable for him to start fighting back. It continues in this verse and says, 
He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. So this is his example to us. He never did anything wrong, and not once did he retaliate with words. He was verbally assaulted and yet said nothing back. He suffered in silence, but he trusted God to fulfill his good purposes. And this is his example. This is how we are to live and react to unjust suffering. We can follow his example. We can trust in God in our working environments. I'm not saying it's easy at all. It's definitely not. But this is how God has asked us to live. How did Jesus do this? How was this his reaction to all that he faced at this time? How did he manage not to threaten and fight back? Well, in the next verse, it says how. It says, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We read earlier, my other point, be mindful of God, set your mind on God. Jesus did this very thing. Jesus knew his father intimately, and he knew that he would make an end to all the suffering and all the persecution and would judge those who persecuted him. All he had to do was keep his eyes and his focus on his father, and he knew deep down that God would do the rest. Isn't this so good? That Jesus knew his father so intimately that even in his hardest time, a time that we could never imagine, could put his whole trust in God and knew that, know that he would do the rest. And in that very moment, when Christ took his last breath on the cross, God poured out his judgment for all the sins of the world onto Jesus' body. And so that we can believe that in the times that we are treated unjustly and harshly in life, God will judge those people and put things right. So I encourage you to, put, to keep putting your trust in God and follow his example. Because this is the only way that we could ever get through these moments in the right way, in the way that pleases God. In verse 24, it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but, now, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So this is my last point, my last S, which is saviour. Jesus is our saviour. We've already read that Jesus had no sin, so he didn't have to die on the cross for himself, but it was for us. All our sin, all our shame, all our failings, he took them, all of them, into his human body. A body that had been abused. A body that had been tortured. And why did he do this? Well, it was so that we could live. And that we could live to righteousness. It was so that we could be set free. It was so that we, can, we don't have to carry our own heavy weight of sin anymore. And we could have a relationship with God the Father once again. It was so that we could be healed and have spiritual healing. Peter, he's quoting Isaiah 53, where it says, by his stripes we are healed. He went through physical affliction, and that was for our sake. We deserve that, yet he took it. He wore our wounds. That was our judgment for our, that was judgment for our sins. If Jesus had not willingly endured unjust suffering at this point, we would have remained lost in our sin. And knowing how much our lives have been changed by this, because of this, when we face unjust suffering, it should make us look in awe and wonder at our amazing God and what he's done for us. 
but he has saved us and allowed us to be free. And not only has he saved us and he's healed us on the cross, but now he wants a personal relationship with us. He wants to be our good shepherd and our overseer. Not once says he's left us and not once will he leave us. And it says that we were straying like sheep. Before we come to know Christ, we are lost. We have no purpose. We have no meaning, but God has made a way for us to be united with him and has given us purpose to live. He is our good shepherd and he is our good master. So as we finish, we're going to take communion in a minute. Let's look, just look back at the passage. Many of these servants that we've read about here, they would have been put under so much pressure. And we can't quite picture what that looks like because the situation in their working environment is different to ours. But what remains true for us all is that God is good and he is our wonderful master. He is the overseer of our souls, not a demanding master where we're in, that we're enslaved to, but a glorious father who treats us with mercy and kindness. So let us submit to him first. Let our minds be set on him and allow the Holy Spirit to work in us. And let us remember what Christ has done for us, that he suffered unjustly, but in doing that, he has become our saviour. He has saved our souls. So as we come and um, do communion, and Sam's going to lead us in that, and as we worship again, let us freshly remind ourselves of who he is first and what he's done for us and ask the Holy Spirit to help us as we navigate our working relationships and, and allow him to work in us and help us to follow in his example.